good morning, guys. You braved the weather, you braved uh, daylight savings time, and you made it out. Congratulations for joining with us. Uh, you know, welcome to March in West Virginia, where you get all four seasons in a matter of three days. That's nuts. 70 degrees on Friday, 60 degrees tomorrow, and eight inches of snow yesterday. But welcome out to those that are here and to those that are watching online as well um, as we open up our minds and open up our hearts to God's Word. We're in the middle of this series called Seven Questions, where we are looking into some of the most important questions that Jesus asked of his disciples in their day that also apply to our lives as well. And I'm learning these days the power of questions in my conversations and in my, my leading of other people. The, the pause and the silence after a question can be much more powerful at, at transferring truth and creating change than just teaching something by itself. It's far more effective as, as a leader or manager, if you manage people, you know this. It's far more effective to ask the question of, okay, what did you learn from this experience? Or, or what would you do differently next time? Rather than leaning in and telling them exactly what needs to be done or sharing your opinion. As a dad of Older kids especially, I'm slowly learning that it's better for me to ask open-ended questions to them as far as like, you know, I'm curious, what, why did you choose to go that route? Instead of putting them on the defensive right from the get-go and me lecturing them on what they should have been done, what they should have done differently. Good questions followed by silence demand this personal reflection of introspection, of looking in, and it passes and transfers ownership and responsibility to people. So that it's far more effective than just teaching by itself, which I think is why Jesus, the master teacher, so often used these kinds of questions to teach a truth. Today, we're going to wrestle with, I think, the most transforming question that Jesus asked. Who do you say that I am? This is such an important question that, that three out of the four gospel writers record this interaction that Jesus has with his disciples. And how you answer that question how you answer Jesus' question to you, who do you say that I am, will determine the, the quality of your earthly life, and it will also determine the destination of your, your eternal destiny. So we're going to pick up this interaction that Jesus had with his disciples in Mark chapter 8. And as you're turning there, let me open us up, up in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you. Thank you for uh, gathering us together. Thank you for a time where we can enter into your presence through worship. And now, God, as we Open up your word. We turn our hearts and our minds and our lives towards what you say is true. Help us this morning to hear from you. Spirit, do your work. Remove the distractions of life so that we can hear from you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27, it says, Jesus and his disciples went to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? Well, Mark starts off and he tells us the specific location that Jesus was having this interaction with his disciples. They were in this town called Caesarea Philippi. This was a, an outpost of a Roman outpost. And in this town, they had temple after temple. They had 14 different temples that were built there to all kinds of different gods. And the newest temple that was built was built for the Caesar. And he referred to himself as the son of God and the king of kings, and the lord of lords, and he actually had an inscription on the outside of the temple that said that very thing. And so I think as Jesus and his disciples were going through this town, I wonder if Jesus doesn't stop right there as they're looking at this temple, and they see this inscription, and he asks this question, who do people say that I am? And by this point, 
folks have all kinds of opinions about who Jesus is. They, they've heard enough of his teaching. They've seen enough of his miracles, the feeding of the 5,000, the healings that took place of, of the blind or the crippled. And so Jesus asked them, so what's the word on the street, guys? What, what are you hearing that people are saying about me? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. And so these disciples look and says, they're saying that you're one of the best ever. I mean, you're up there with the Old Testament prophets. And then Jesus looks them in the eye, and he makes it personal, and he asks this question of them. But what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you're the Messiah. And then Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. This word Messiah, or maybe your translation uh, says Christ, it's the same word. One's a Hebrew word, one's a, a, a Greek word. It just means the anointed one or, or the, the chosen one of God. And this is a big deal. But for, for centuries, the Jewish people have been waiting for their Messiah, their, their promised leader that the Old Testament prophecy said would, would finally free them from the oppression that they've been under, would finally bring peace into their land again. And since the time of David and Solomon a thousand years ago, the nation of Israel had just been a pawn in the, the political uh, realm and the global politics. They'd just been seen as slaves, and they were beaten down. They were tortured for, from the Persians to the Assyrians to the Babylonians and then the Greeks, and, and now the Romans. They, they have only known being political pawns or slaves. And so for a thousand years, for centuries, they had put all of their hope in one name, Messiah, that there will be a Christ, a Messiah, who will finally rescue them. So in those times, uh, their understanding or the concept or their hope of what the Messiah would be was much more political than spiritual. That They envisioned this warrior Messiah who would come in and overthrow the Romans. And so Peter excitedly looks at Jesus and says, you're the one, aren't you? You're the Messiah. You are coming to finally free us. And Jesus nods, but he says to them, don't tell anyone about me. In other words, he's saying, you have the name right, but you are so wrong in your assumptions about what the Messiah is going to do. And he starts giving some explanation. He says, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. And after three days, rise again. And it says that he spoke plainly about this. He spoke plainly, meaning he was trying his best to get them to understand what his role was really going to be. This is how it must take place. He, he's correcting centuries of misunderstanding about what the role and the purpose of the Messiah is and how it was that he would free his people. And so he lays out his plan of what it means to free and bring peace. It's going to include suffering and rejection and death and a resurrection. They, they, but they had such a strong opinion about what the Messiah was going to do that no matter what Jesus told them, they weren't hearing it. He was speaking as plainly and as clearly as he could, but they weren't hearing it because he wasn't meeting their expectations. He was trying to correct some, some things and they, were not, they weren't hearing it. So, so Peter interrupts him and says, this doesn't make any sense. The, the Messiah that we're looking for isn't going through suffering. He's not going to get killed. Like, you, Jesus, you don't, you don't understand. You, you're the next president. You can't go getting yourself killed. And so in verse 32, it says, Peter took Jesus aside and he began to rebuke him. 
But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. He said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. I think it's funny that it says that, that Peter began to rebuke him. I don't think it lasted, lasted very long. I, th- th- that's pretty gutsy on his part uh, to be able to critique the Messiah. And for me, quick aside, I think this, is, this interaction here or stories like this is one of the reasons why I see the authenticity of Scripture because Peter one day would lead the church and these are the founding documents. What, these stories that are found in Scripture of the Gospels are the founding documents and, and they include a story of the leader of the church being called Satan. I mean, think about that. I mean, if you're trying to gain support for, the, for your religious movement, you're not going to include this kind of story. But the very fact that it's included in here tells me that this actually took place. And then we can trust what Scripture says. But this was such a dangerous misunderstanding. Peter's misunderstanding was so dangerous that Jesus had to correct it. And so he calls Peter out for the selfish reasons that he had for following Jesus so far. He looks at him and says, you don't have in mind the things of God. You are only looking at my role as a Messiah from a human understanding. Peter, you've enjoyed following me. Be honest, Peter. You're not really concerned about what happens to me. You're concerned about what might happen to you if something happens to me. You're just in this as a consumer right now. You're in this for what you can get out of this relationship. The strongest rebuke that was ever given by Jesus is this one here when he rebukes Peter. And it was because Peter was trying to force Jesus into this mold that matched his assumptions. And I think that is still the biggest temptation that we face. If you're taking notes, I think we can definitely fall into Peter's camp. And our greatest temptation is to reshape Jesus according to our expectations. Just like Peter, that there's a part of us that wants to, to pick and choose the parts of Jesus that we want to follow and the ones that we don't. And we kind of created Jesus into our own liking. And for Peter in that day, his understanding of who Jesus was was shaped by the culture that he grew up in. So for him, it was this military conqueror. That's not so much the case for us. I, ours is more shaped by the culture we grew up in, this consumeristic culture. And so we have this idea of Jesus that's kind of one part fire insurance, this get out of hell free card that we can play, one part genie in a bottle, this kind of ultimate good luck charm that has to answer the dreams that I have and make sure bad things go away. He's one part personal cheerleader who's okay and permissive of all the things that we want to do and approves of all the things that we approve of. And he's one part coach or advisor and we find ourselves going to him when we're in a pinch and needing some advice. And none of those are completely wrong. They're just incomplete. And Jesus won't allow us to pick and choose the parts of him that we follow. He won't let us treat him like a golden corral buffet and we kind of make the deity of our own liking. He is who he is, which means that there will be times when he contradicts us. There will be times when he confuses us. There will be times that he has to correct us. And we have to come to a place of, of truth and, and wrestle with this same question. In your heart of hearts, who do you say that Jesus is? And there's really, I think, only real three possibilities. One is that he was a myth. 
And this is a common assumption that people have, that the Bible is just these made-up stories of the human imagination that was just handed down from generation to generation, but Jesus was just a myth. And so if you believe that, then you're free to pick and choose what it is that you want to follow. The other option is that he was a man, that he was a good man, that he was a great moral teacher. But he wasn't perfect. I mean, he was just a man. So some of the things that he taught, some of the teachings or ideas of what life looks like, he could be wrong because he was just a fallible man. And again, if you are in that camp, if you think that Jesus was just a good moral teacher, pick and choose the aspects of Jesus that you want to follow because then you can justify the times when you don't want to follow some things. Yeah, that, that's good for a lot of people, but I mean, not for me. I, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the exception to the rule here. Or, or yeah, Jesus' teaching was good back then, but it doesn't really apply in our culture. And if he's just a good man and a good moral teacher then follow what suits you, and then you can ignore the rest. But here's the thing. If he, was, if he was just a myth, why is it that the earliest followers of his all went to their death believing and saying that he rose from the dead? And if he's just a good teacher, I don't even think that his teaching allows you to say that he was just a good moral teacher because he consistently taught that he was God. So that only really leaves one option to really consider, and that is that he is the Messiah, that he is who he said that he is. And if he's the Messiah, then picking and choosing goes out the window, that we have to follow him. And if in fact that he is the Messiah, then that changes everything. And as we follow him, it will radically change our life. So in the time that we have left, I want to answer a related question. What does it mean to follow Jesus as the Messiah. And Jesus paints a, a picture of what a follower of his looks like. The, the first thing is that a follower's mind is set on the things of God. As Jesus is correcting Peter and rebuking Peter, he says this, and he talks about the ulterior motives that he had. He says, Peter, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Jesus tells Peter that the reason that, that he couldn't accept and they wouldn't follow Jesus as Messiah was because he was only thinking and viewing Jesus from this human worldly perspective. Peter was focused on, on vengeance. He was focused on, on victory. He was focused on the accolades or the power that might come into his life if he's part of freeing Israel from Roman control. But he was only looking about what he could get out of him. He was only viewing Jesus from this human perspective. So what about you? What, what occupies your mind most of the time? We have to look in the mirror and, and ask a, a real hard, honest question. Chad, where's your heart today? What's your biggest concern in life these days? It, are you pursuing the things of this world? Are you thinking most, mostly about money and success and fame? Or does your heart beat for the things of God? Are, are you seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Or is there some other priority that drives you, some other goal that, that consumes your time and your energy? Having our minds set on the things of God, not on the things of this, of this earth, means that we focus our life on the things that will last forever. And there are only three things that last forever. There are only three things that are eternal. God, his word, and people. 
Nothing else in this world will last into eternity. Houses and cars and social media likes and money and fame and looks, all of those things will fade. They will not last into eternity. And that doesn't mean that that we can't enjoy blessings and and vacations and cars and all those things. But, But when Jesus is our Messiah, it means that those things are no longer the pursuit of our lives and that we can enjoy them but hold them with an open hand. That that's not where our heart is bent towards. Think about the benefit of, of living this way, of living with an open hand and our minds focused on eternity. Think about the peace that would follow if our minds were truly in that way. How much of our stress would go away? How much of our anxiety would go away? How much of the worry of this life would go away? Because almost all of those are rooted in some way about because we, we care too much for these temporary things, about what people think about us, do I have enough money? Why do others have nicer things than me or better looks? But, but when we set our minds on the things of God, when we set our minds on eternal things, life is just better. We're set free from the distractions of this life that never really give fulfillment. And we have clarity about what it means to actually follow Jesus. So a follower's mind is set on the things of God. And secondly, a follower's actions are marked by sacrifice. After Jesus corrects Peter. He gathers the crowd that that was still following after them, and he uses this as a teaching moment. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Jesus doesn't hold back any punches. He says, okay, if you want to be a follower of mine, I'm going to show you the fine print. There's sacrifice involved in following me. Now, now, granted, there are huge benefits that come in our life as we follow after him. He provides relief from stresses and burdens. He makes us a better husband or a better wife. He, he gives us forgiveness and eternal life. All these things are great things that happen when we trust and follow Jesus. But he says that there will also be times when you have to deny yourself. We have to do some hard things if you're going to be a follower. So what does it mean to deny ourselves? It's this idea that, that we have this flesh, that this sinful part of us that's going to want to, to lead us basically to do anything but follow after him. That when you set your alarm to wake up a little bit early, to read your Bible and to connect with God, your flesh is going to say, no, just five more minutes. Just hit that snooze button one more time. But we deny our flesh. We deny ourselves. They know I'm getting up. I, I need to meet with God this morning. When your flesh says, I am so angry at that person, every part of you wants to let everybody know what he did and to slander and to gossip, following Jesus, being his disciple, is to deny your flesh, to deny that part of you that wants to do that and instead say, no, I'm going to forgive them instead. That's this upside-down, self-denying, counterintuitive living of what it means to follow after Jesus. When your flesh says, you know what, I, I can bend the truth just a little bit, so that I can close this deal, so that I can meet quota for this month. And following Jesus is to deny that impulse and not put financial gain above your integrity. Jesus is saying that there will be crossroads, there will be forks in the road where what Jesus wants for you and what your flesh wants to do will be in different directions. And at some point, obedience to him, following after him is going to cost you something. Your desires are going to go one way. And Jesus is going to tell you to go the other way. 
to end a relationship that you don't really want to end, but you know that it's not healthy. To change your career or your major, to make a financial sacrifice in some way, to forgive when you don't want to, to, to take a stand on some issue when it's easier and more comfortable just to remain silent, to speak the gospel to someone that you're intimidated by. At some point, obedience to him will take you 180 degrees opposite of the direction that you want to go. And it's probably not going to make your life easier in the short run. It's actually going to make it harder for a season. And you will have to sacrifice some of your desires, some of your comfort, if you're going to continue to follow him. Taking up the cross means that, that I fully surrender to God. And I say, God, the answer is yes. Now, what's the question? Does that describe your relationship with Jesus? Or are there some limits to where you will follow him? Are there some limits to your obedience? Is there an area of your life where you say, you know what, I, I can't walk away from that? Jesus, I, I can't let go of that right now. Following Jesus is going to require sacrifice. And this process of denying ourselves, it's a, it's a lifelong process that never really goes away. In fact, Luke's, Luke's account of the same story indicates that we are to take up our cross daily, that this kind of surrender, this kind of sacrifice, this kind of serving is a daily decision, not just a one-time prayer. I heard someone explain it this way, Deny, denying ourselves isn't so much like taking a $1,000 bill and laying it on the table and saying, all right, Jesus, I'm all in, I surrender my life. It's more like having a supply of 100,000 pennies. And every day, multiple times a day, consistently surrendering it over to Jesus. When I play basketball with the kids, when I really just want to come home because it's been a hard day and I want to veg on the couch, when I let someone out in traffic, when I'm leaving the parking lot, when I choose not to retaliate in, the, in a, a time of anger, when, when I choose to serve someone instead of being served, following Jesus is more about the pennies than it is this $1,000 bill. And honestly, I, I, it's harder to surrender daily over a period of years than it is to make this big splash with just one big act of surrender. Surrender and, and sacrifice. That, that's a hard teaching for us to take in. And I, I think if we're honest, the real reason that we struggle so much with this teaching, the real reason why we, we push back a little bit when Jesus says, no, this life of following after me is one of self-denial and taking up the cross. The reason we push back is that we don't truly trust that God is better than our flesh. If we're honest, that the fear that we have is that we're going to miss out on something if we follow Jesus. Uh, this pastor that I, I follow, uh, John Hortberg, says it this way. I cannot surrender to God unless I trust that he has my best interest at heart. I, I just can't do it otherwise. Jesus has a lot to say about death to self. But it's always the death of a lesser self, of a false self, so that a better, nobler self can come to life. It's always death to desires and behaviors that would end up killing me anyhow so that I can come alive and thrive as the person that God wants me to be. These sacrifices that Jesus tells us to do, we will find in the end that it actually led or leads to the kind of life that we wanted to have anyway. Our surrender and our obedience to God's command for our lives will shape us so that we can fulfill 
his plan and his purpose for our lives. And that's the third point, is that a follower's life has greater purpose. We have these minds that are set on the things of God, that we keep an eternal perspective as we walk through this life, and that our actions are marked by this idea of sacrifice and surrender and serving others. Jesus says this in verse 35. He says, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Jesus is saying that that if you want to save your life, that is, if you want to chase only after your own desires and earthly wealth and possessions, what you will find at the end of that life is that wasn't any kind of life at all. You've actually lost your life. One day you're going to lose all this temporary stuff in the world, and you're going to feel like, you know what, I ultimately lost in this game of life. But if you follow Jesus, Jesus says, if you follow me, if you live this life of surrender, this life of sacrifice, if you live with this gospel at the center of your life, then what you'll find is you'll experience real life. And you will find what you were really created to do. When God knit you in your mother's, room, in, in your mother's womb, he, he did not create you saying, you know what, the, this child here will find his truest meaning in life his deepest joy in life if he just indulges in whatever he wants to do. No, you and I were created to be a part of something much bigger than just fulfilling our own desires. We're called to be a part of his rescue mission for the world. Following Jesus means accepting our assignment in the Great Commission. It's The Great Commission is found everywhere, that Jesus says, I have saved you for a purpose. One time at the very beginning of his ministry, when he calls the disciples to follow after him. He says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. If you truly follow him, then that's what he has for you. God has uniquely gifted us in different ways, and there are all kinds of roles and all kinds of ways that we can be a part of his mission, but ultimately in this life, our responsibility and where we will find the deepest joy in this life is when we partner with him and we follow him and we are in fact fishers of men that we are sharing the good news of who Jesus is to the people in our lives following Jesus means taking a hard look at our talents and our abilities and our resources and in light of this idea that I'm supposed to use those to fulfill the gospel message so why did God give you the talents the passions, the abilities that you have? Why did he give you the financial resources that he gave you? And then are you using those to fulfill the Great Commission? Are you using those to reach people with this amazing message of God's love and grace? A follower's life has a grander purpose. We have a greater purpose than just accumulating as much wealth as we can. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? If you would say that he is the Messiah, then trust him enough. Trust him enough to follow him wherever he leads. If he's the Messiah, are you really following him? Like in the, in the everyday, when you wake up tomorrow, what does it mean for us to follow him? In my interactions with others, it, in the influence that you may have at, at work or, or in your family, as my mind is focused on the things of God, then I begin to see people the way that he sees them. Eternal souls that that will spend eternity somewhere. 
And then as I walk through my everyday life and I embrace this life of, of sacrifice, of denying myself, of surrendering to God, of, of serving the people around me, then I put myself in a position where, where I can view every single day, every single interaction, every relationship that I have as an opportunity for them to see Jesus in me. And then I stand ready to tell them about the Messiah who saved me and who wants to do the same for them. Let's pray together. Jesus, as we see this interaction that you have with the disciples, you ask a very powerful question. Who do you say that I am? And, and we have to be able to cut through some of the justifications that we may have in our lives and to really wonder whether we have made you to be something that you're not. You are who you are. And that means there will be times where you call us away from our comfort to a, a grander purpose that will demand that we let go of some things, that we live a life of full surrender to you. God, as we look at our hearts, we need to examine our desire to truly follow after you. Do we trust that you are going to lead us to a place of, of satisfaction and fulfillment. God, help us to have the courage to trust. The Spirit, the Spirit would bring to mind some of the hesitations that we might have. You have called us to be a part of sharing your gospel, sharing your good news, that we lose our life in order to gain life so that others can experience eternal life with you. thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. Now give us the boldness to live in response and to follow wherever it is that you lead us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, guys, thanks for coming out. Those of you that are serving, uh, we invite you to hop into the Next Steps room, grab you a bite to eat. Thank you, guys. We'll see you back here next week.